Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Thank you very much. A few thank yous before we open the word, if I could. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me back. That's, that's wonderful to be able to, to be here. Um, I want to thank the church. I want to thank you for allowing Guga and Rachel and family to go on vacation. I think that is, a, that is an important thing in the life of every pastor that he has that time of rest and refreshment. One of the, the men that uh, I learned from through books uh, many years ago, his name is Brian Croft. He's a man who taught me uh, things like when you go on a hospital visit, pastor, don't stay a long time. They're in the hospital for a reason. In fact, they may not even want to see you. Would you just take a three-by-five card and write a I was here and a verse if they don't want to see you? And they'll read that over and over again. Brian said, sometimes the three-by-five card is way more important than your lengthy visit. And he said, stay a short time. And so I learned from him years ago. Another thing I learned, I, he, he wrote about vacations, and he said, Three things about a pastor's vacation. So let me just give you a... First of all, a vacation is for the pastor. He needs a break from ministry. He needs to be able to get away and not think about the flock full-time, 24-7 like he does. He needs a break, and so that's good. So it's for the pastor that he takes a vacation. And, and I'm sure, Gugas, I saw a picture today from them in Yosemite. It's just beautiful. Secondly, it's for his family. As, as a pastor, you're divided with your time between your, your family your, in your home and your church family. And, and so this is it. So he needs a vacation for his family so he can just concentrate on them, and that's good. And then the third thing Brian Croft said is the pastor needs a vacation for you, not from you, for you, because because he needs to be refreshed and rejuvenated, so when he comes back, he's charged up and ready to go. And so thank you. I just want to say thank you for allowing them to take this vacation, and I know they'll come back refreshed and ready to be here, and that's so good. Uh, a second thank you, David. Excellent choice of worship songs. That is just so good. It, I love it when uh, a worship leader texts and said, where are you going with your sermon? And and sometimes they don't text, and the Holy Spirit just weaves it all together, and sometimes they do, and the Holy Spirit puts it all together. So many of these songs just tie right in with what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you would open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to talk this morning about the glory of the new covenant. And I know it's uh, 18 verses, but I'd just like us to stand And let's read the Word of God together this morning. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not, the, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his scripture. You may be seated. This is the kind of the big idea of where we're going this morning. The glory of the new covenant far surpasses the glory of the Old Covenant, as we each gaze face-to-face at the person of Jesus Christ. Guga tells me that you've been talking through and walking through the covenants of the Bible. Yes? Am I on the right? Okay, good. The text we have before us this morning, I hope, will tie in with what he's been preaching. Paul has stated in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11, he's been saying that he's a legitimate apostle. There was some doubt about that. The church was having some doubts. There was a faction in the church that was doubting that he was a legitimate apostle. And, and they were doubting it because he suffered. A, a, a good apostle, a good orator, a good speaker of that day shouldn't suffer. Everything was fine with them. But he suffered as he experienced Christ as an apostle here. He, as he suffered, Christians were comforted by observing how he dealt with and glorified God through the suffering that he experienced. As you and I suffer, Christians around us can be comforted as they watch how we deal with it and how we trust God through suffering and through difficult times. We're not promised freedom or escape from suffering as Christians. In fact, suffering for Christ is actually an evidence of our faith in Christ. That suffering is actually an evidence that you're one of God's children. Just a few weeks ago, uh, when that trucking convoy happened in Canada, the pastor in Alberta, Canada, uh, who had been arrested five times for in the past 12 months, he was arrested for trying to hold outside church services. Remember him and all of that? This time he was going to speak at the trucker's convoy, and a SWAT team came to his door and arrested him before he could speak. I would tell you in that case, suffering for Christ is an evidence 
that he's a Christian in his walk with the Lord. It's not an accident. But Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the chapter before, that through suffering, God is made known to the world. God actually uses suffering to make himself known to the world. Some are going to see it, it says in chapter 2, some are going to see it as life-giving, and others will see it as death, and they'll reject that ministry of suffering that they see, and ultimately rejecting Christ. Now he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 17, that he speaks in Christ, and now the glory of the new covenant begins to come into view as he begins to talk. Paul, because Paul and his ministry partners uh, had been united to God's Son, um, it was the message, not the messenger, though that was most important. Christ was speaking through them. So really, the theme for this morning, the theme for the entire book, I think, of Second Corinthians is strength through weakness. Strength through weakness. And we're going to look at that in three parts today. We're going to look first at Paul's ministry and the Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit interact with Paul in his ministry and his partners? That's in verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 11, Paul's going to go back and give us an example from history. It's often good to look back at history. And uh, Paul goes back in history, in the history of the Old Testament, and he brings out an account from the Old Testament to reinforce his statement about the ministry and the Holy Spirit's involvement. And thirdly, Paul applies the example from history in verses 12 through 18. So let's look first at Paul's ministry in the Spirit, verses 1 through 6. So he begins this chapter with two questions. And the first one is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? We're going to expect a negative answer from both of these when he writes it out. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He's not praising himself with these words. He's not trying to have false humility. Um, are we commending ourselves? Why would the one who planted the church, the, the father, father of the church, as it were, the, the one who introduced these people to the faith, why would he need to introduce himself again? That would be silly for him to introduce him. It's like when you go to work every day and you come home and you introduce yourself to your family every day when you come home. Dad, so that would be silly. It's, it's ridiculous. That's kind of what he's saying. Then that leads to the second question. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you and from you? Again, a negative answer. No is expected. Paul does not need, as others might, letters of recommendation. Other people might need or demand some type of a letter of recommendation, not Paul, especially because he planted the church. He knew them and they knew him. It seems that the Corinthian church was put off by the fact that Paul was pretty unimpressive. He wasn't all that. He wasn't that important. Why would such an unimpressive person be putting himself forward? They would say, we need somebody better. They would say, we need someone more eloquent in speech. We need someone a little more impressive in stature, perhaps, or in looks, or maybe we need somebody who would add a few more rules and regulations to what we do so that we can really know if we're following because we'll add some law to the grace of the gospel, and we need that. And so he was under attack, probably not from the whole church, probably just from a faction in the church. But notice that little word in verse 1, he commends himself again, again. That would indicate that this is not the first time that Paul has talked about this. He's had to defend his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians before, even though he had been with them for a year and a half 
They were skeptical. There was a doubting faction in the church who challenged Paul in his ministry. In, in chapter 1, he said, I actually came to you with godly sincerity. That's in one twelve, and then verse, chapter 1, verse 21, he says, I actually came to you with divine anointing. It was God who anointed me and enabled me. And then we have in, he talks about this in 2.14, this triumphal procession. A little hard to see there, but in the Roman world, when there was a, there was a procession that would happen, when a, a conquest had happened, and the slaves would be in back, and all the bounty and everything, and the soldiers would be in front. And we would think, Paul says, I come in triumphal procession. I'm, I'm in front leading the charge. It's actually just the opposite. He's in back. He's the slave of Christ, as was mentioned in our call to worship this morning. He was the slave, serving the people, serving the people there. It's no wonder that he feels the need to deal with a subjection that he's presenting to Corinthians, up, maybe an inflated view of himself or not quite enough. A bit of background to the letter of recommendation. The ESV commentary says, get caught up here. Okay, there we go. Is a letter written to formally introduce a traveler to a potential host on behalf of the sender. So how were they used? They would have been, a, they would have been a, an introduction given to a stranger that would validate the person standing before them. They were recommended to that person. That you would welcome them. You should listen to them when they come. Lou, were, Lou and I were watching a couple weeks ago an online Hillsdale College course. I don't know if you guys are dialed into those. They're wonderful to listen to. And uh, did you know that when Christopher Columbus sailed to the New World, one of the times he sailed to the New World, he had letters of recommendation from the King of Spain to those, the Emperor of China that he was supposed to meet. But he brought letters of recommendation with him. Never delivered them, of course. I think the closest he got was where we would have the Panama Canal right now, but he never, never made it there. A more modern example would be a letter of recommendation you'd put with an application for a job, a job application or a resume or maybe an appointment to military service or, and you have a letter of recommendation if you wanted to go to one of the academies. So Paul then goes on in verses 2 and 3 and he says that he is their letter of recommendation. He says, is that verse 2 up there? Go back one. There we go. Man, my eyesight and my age. That's okay. That's all right. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He doesn't say that no letters needed to be written. He said it's just not that kind of letter, not that kind of letter. Paul's letter is not a piece of parchment, but rather the Corinthian church themselves. That's his letter. The changed lives of the Corinthians were the letter, were the evidence of Paul's ministry. Their changed lives and God's transforming grace in their lives is what allowed that. That's, that's the letter, he says, which everyone, he says in verse 2, can know and read, both inside the church and outside of the church. When we gather together, we are a letter to each other of God's grace in our lives. When we gather each Sunday and give each other hugs and greet each other, it's an evidence of God's work in our lives. To put it in modern terms, vindication of Paul's ministry is not a letter in a mailbox. It really is a look in the mirror. That's what it is. It's a look in the mirror. Paul's ministry was actually validated by their changed lives. Verse 3 makes it so clear. 
And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul takes this metaphor of this Corinthians as a letter, and um, I think the ESV commentary says it so good. I hope you can read that. Here's what he says about, he says, the Corinthians. The Corinthians were the letter. Christ was the author of the letter. Paul is the deliverer of the letter. The spirit is the ink of the letter. And the human heart are the tablets that it's written on. Paul makes it clear that it's the living Christ himself, not Paul, that it's the ultimate source of their transformation. He says, you're transformed because of the grace of God. Through me, yes, but it's the grace of God that did it through me that you've been transformed. You're a living letter. But Paul, in bringing into view, is, is bringing into view something really uh, much more than the Corinthians being just a living letter of his ministerial justification, if you will. And this is the key to understanding the rest of the chapter. Paul is placing his ministry among them within the context of all of redemptive history. His ministry to them in that city at that time, he says, I I need to help you to see where you fit in all of redemptive history. We all need to reflect on that. Where are we in redemptive history? We know these are the last days. And then come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So he's going beyond what they were, who they were in Christ, what they were, to actually when they were living. He's pointing out what era of history they find themselves in. And so Paul is actually going back to a key Old Testament text and pointing out that that, that, that fulfillment of those texts was happening in that messy, broken, sinful church, along with a lot of other churches then and even today. The Old Testament speaks of a day when God would establish a new covenant where God would put his law within them and write it on their hearts. God always made it clear that internal transformation was needed for that to happen. Proverbs 7.23, keep my commandments and live. Write them on the tablets of your heart but also that God was going to need to intervene to make that happen. Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all that you may live. It's the Lord God who does that. It's the Lord God who does that. For centuries, God's people had failed to live up to the law perfectly. We know that. Now God would no longer command them from outside. He's transforming them from the inside by the Spirit. So in verses 4 to 6, he begins to draw out the implications of that example. He says in verse 4, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. The word confidence occurs six times in the New Testament, four of them right here in 2 Corinthians. Pretty important idea that he has here. Here Paul is stating that any confidence that they have in ministry should not be directed toward Paul, but directed to God. He says, if you're looking for eloquent orators, he says, you're looking in the wrong place. You shouldn't be looking for who could speak better, but who could speak about the Lord better. That's what he's saying. 
His integrity, his motives, his affirmation of his ministry ultimately does not come from them, comes from God. And because God commissioned him, he's approved by God. He calls it a confidence through Christ. That's what he says, a confidence through Christ. Left on his own abilities, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to fall short. Don't we see that in ourselves ourselves so often? Our abilities and our resources for anything quickly fall short. Can't fix it all. We don't say it in just the right way. We, our motives get clouded too easily. Ultimately, your and my confidence is because we're in Christ. And any success we receive, we receive is through Christ. That's what he says. Then in verse 5, he says, he wants to, Corinthians to understand why he's so confident in the ministry. He says, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficient, sufficiency is from God. It's not based on his own sufficiency. He actually goes so far as to say that he can't claim anything, anything as coming from himself. He says that his ministry is not Christ and him, but Christ in him. That's, that's the important thing. It's Christ in him. Here's just one example where he says this in another one of the letters. Paul says, I toil, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I work, I struggle, I toil, and it's with his energy that he puts inside of me. Is it Christ or is it Paul? Yes, yes, it's both. Paul's not a robot, he's not passively being acted upon. Any claim he makes to fruitful ministry says it's not self-generated. It didn't come from me. It's actually a humbling and liberating thing to say it's all from God. It's all from him. When any of us are involved in ministry, whether it's teaching, preaching, leading, directing, even parenting, it's easy to be, it's easy to be overwhelmed with shortcomings and inadequacy and our lack of sufficiency. We've all experienced that. If we, if we never feel that, I don't think we're looking at ministry correctly. One commentator said, every, le- every leader needs a healthy dose of not enoughness. Guga needs that. I need that. Every elder, every deacon, we need a healthy dose of not enoughness. We all do. He went on to say, this commentator said, we don't generate adequacy ourselves, but we receive adequacy from God. Our adequacy comes from outside of us, from God, not something inside of us, that moral will or that trying harder or, or this, that courage that you have. It's much more than that. He says it's from outside. It's from God. Paul then goes a little deeper on, and in verse 6, this idea of God giving sufficiency, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In verse 5, he says that his sufficiency is from God. Now he explains why. For what purpose has he been made sufficient? Paul and his ministry partners were positioned historically to speak or herald the latter days of the coming of Messiah. For the Spirit to be poured out 
and for the people of God to be restored. At that point in time, they were stewards or they were proclaimers of this new covenant, all coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it actually says, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Every single promise, Old Testament, are fulfilled, are yes in Jesus Christ. He's bringing out this important point, point that what was expected to happen at the end of history actually began in the middle of history, the first century. At the second coming of Christ, he's, he's going to bring to completion the new age that was launched at his first coming. This was alluded to earlier also. Thank you, Lord. The Corinthians and you and I are living in what some have called the already, but the not yet. It's like was said earlier, time of history. There's an overlap of the ages because of the final fulfillment has not yet occurred. And with one voice, we all say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, please. Currently, Paul says that this new covenant ministry is not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why, why is that? He says, because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Letter is shorthand for the entire ministry of the age of Moses, which Paul called in verse 14 the Old Covenant in contrast to the New. And in verse 3, Paul has called out called the Old Covenant tablets of stone, if you look back to verse 3, the Ten Commandments. Paul's point and our takeaway from this section, the letter is outside in. The spirit is inside out. We've got the spirit inside of us. It's inside out. What's the implication of that inside-out fact? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, he says. The letter doesn't actually save rules and strictly following do's and don'ts. How many people think that they attain heaven through rules and regulations and doing things? We had a wonderful meal with a, a family this week. Part of the family met with us, and, and uh, they're a wonderful, moral, Mormon family. And we pray for them often. We pass a Mormon church on the way to our church, and we, that's our reminder right then to stop and pray for the, that family and the boy that we had in foster care that is now in their home. And uh, is he 11 or 12, Lou? 12 years old this last week. But it's not rules and regulations. It's not following strict rules. That's where I'm going with that. Do's and don'ts don't save Literally, the Spirit says, makes alive. He's going he's to turn and start, start talking in resurrection language. The Spirit makes alive. The letter can only kill because it bounces off of a hard heart. When God gets inside of the heart, what happens? It says right here, he softens the heart. He melts it. He makes it alive. If you're a Christian, that's exactly what happened to you. You had a hard heart. He melted your heart so that you could be receptive to the gospel. We often pray, Lord, open this person or that person's eyes and heart to the truth of the gospel because on their own, they can't do it. They can't see it because their heart is hard. So what do we do with this truth? I think every morning, I know I do, when you and I roll out of bed, we have to do battle with our okayness and our enoughness, our sufficiency. Every morning we have to do that. All of that comes from God. It's a gift to be received. It's not a prize that we earn. It's a gift to be received. We have to receive that sufficiency from him every day. Martin Luther says things very succinctly often, and no exception here. 
Luther said it this way, we have confidence that God has qualified us. If he does so, that's all that matters. If the world does not consider us qualified, so be it. That's pretty straightforward. It's God who qualifies. It's God who does it. God qualifies him and us. Now to our second point. Paul's example from history. We move to verses 7 through 11, and he begins to contrast the ministry of death with a ministry of the Spirit. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So in the first six verses, he's been giving a contrast between the old age and the new, drawing from Jeremiah 31 and from Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. We know those passages well. Now Paul goes even further back, drawing from an event in Exodus 34. The old age had glory, he said, but it's nothing compared to the glory of the new age. Moses, remember, had descended from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, a wonderful time in the history of Israel, except for that golden calf part. Paul now says that the new covenant age is unspeakably superior to the old. Why? Because it's the dawning of this end times reality right now. He says, Corinthians, this is happening right now. This end times reality is coming into play right now. Christ through the Holy Spirit transforms us into the reality of what we're going to experience in the age to come. So Paul now begins in this section with a series of extended contrasts between the two defining periods of history. And the first he calls the ministry of death and the ministry of con- versus the ministry of condemnation and the old covenant. The, ma- the main idea in verses 7 through 11 is glory. The main idea that we're going to see in verses 12 through 18 is veiling, veiling. Even though Paul calls the old age one of death because of its external demands, the old age, he says, was also an age of glory. Paul never denies that, but he says the new age has far surpassing glory. The glory that we're in, the age that we're in right now has far surpassing glory to the old age. He used the account of the radiance of Moses' face as he descended from Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34. Moses had been speaking with the Lord to such a degree that his face shone, even though he could not look directly at God, since he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. Remember that from Exodus 33? Yet Paul is going to assert in verse 18, and we'll get there in a few minutes, that all God's people look directly at the face of God now in the person of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing truth. One man, Moses, looking from the cleft of the rock at the back. Now we look face to face, all of us, face to face, the person of Jesus Christ because of the Spirit. So Paul then uses a literary pattern in verses 8 through 11, kind of a lesser to greater. This is what he says. 7 and 8, if the ministry of death had glory, then how much more the ministry of the Spirit? He's not denying that it had glory, but how much more? If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the lesser, then how much more the ministry of righteousness? If the transient had glory, then how much more? the permanent in verse 11. As glorious as that was, he says in verse 7, it's being brought to an end. Now we begin to anticipate what's going to happen in the age to come. But even um, when Christ returns, but even more, 
Every believer has the Spirit active and alive themselves right now. Paul then, in the next few verses, relies extensively, like I said, on resurrection language. There's a direct connection between the Spirit and resurrection life. He says, one of the commentators said this, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. God's Spirit inside every one of us is an evidence or a sign of the dawning of the new creation. It helps us to live right now and to anticipate life in the future. I'll be the first to admit, our bodies get old and and tired. I sit down when I preach now. We don't move as fast. Eventually, we're going to perish because the old remains. The sin remains. But for those who are united to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're guaranteed final resurrection. Amen? And this life has already begun, he says. It's already happening. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. He made us alive, raised us up with him. Not will raise us up, but has raised us up with him already. Colossians 3, 1. You have been raised with Christ, present right now. So three elements of the new age are present now. The Spirit... Amen? Resurrection and glory. In verse 9, we get the second how much when he says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. It far exceeds it. The latter even more. If the old had glory, the latter even more. What's this ministry of righteousness? What's he talking about, a ministry of righteousness? You've all experienced it. If you're a Christian, you've all experienced it. It's that instance, that legal act of acquittal where you were justified, brought into right standing with God. It's, it's an accomplished thing. In the Old Testament, righteousness often returned, referred to looking forward to something. Paul says it's here. It's actually inside of you. Verse 9 is another signal from Paul that the, the glorious end of history has broken into this fallen world right now. And it is a fallen world. Because of the atoning work of Christ in the middle of history, you and I can anticipate, are looking forward to full, in-time acquittal at the end of history. Paul's saying, let's rest in that righteousness. Rest in that. He goes on in verse 10. Is that verse 9 or verse 10? There we go, verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So Paul pauses between these first two contrasts and a third one to drive home the point regarding the glory of the old age and the glory of the new. The old age was glorious, he says, a time in history of blessing and privilege. What are some of the blessings from the children of Israel? I mean, for goodness sake, they were delivered from slavery. They were delivered from slavery. They they were cared for by the Lord in many practical ways, manna, water, quail. They'd been given the law. They'd been called God's treasured possession among all the peoples. How glorious is that? That's what they received. But when Christ arrives, the glory is so wonderful that it seems as if it's no glory at all, that it surpasses it. Then in verse 11, Paul brings in one more contrast to make his point. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more for what is permanent, what will... (laughs) Much more will what is permanent have glory. 
So as wonderful as the first two contrasts were that he brought out, he says the third contrast highlights the permanence of the glory. He says, this glory is eternal. This glory is eternal. Paul's going to address this again in chapter 4, verse 18. <laughs> Here's his point. The old glory was transient. It was unsustainable. It was, it was going to end. How much more the new, the, the new glory that's going to last for eternity? I believe, I, I know for sure from Scripture, you and I will never stop marveling at the new covenant in Christ. Never. We will be marveling at the new covenant in Christ, I think, for all of eternity. We're going to be marveling at that. That's hard to grasp because we live in the right here, right now. We have stuff all around us, difficult week, difficult week coming up, on and on and on. But it's true. And it should shape how we live right now, not just waiting for the future. It's going to be a glorious for all of eternity. We're going to marvel at salvation and what was accomplished in our lives. But he says, that should impact how you live right now. Paul now is going to apply verses 12 to 18 and what he's been talking about. He's going to switch from glory to the idea of veiling. Paul applies, thirdly, the example from history. He says in verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Here Paul speaks of boldness. In chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to speak of not losing heart. It's the same idea, that boldness in Christ and also not losing heart. We don't lose heart. True theology for Paul always moves toward the heart. People say theology is so difficult. And, but if you break it down in, in one of its simplest things, Paul says true theology always moves toward the heart always moves toward the He wants his readers to have their heart impacted by the doctrine and move toward fruitful Christian living now. He says, what's the hope? He says, in the context, it's the new age that's broken into history. True biblical hope is not wishful thinking for how it's going to be in the future. He says, confidence in the future helps us, gives us a foretaste, a glimpse right now of what it's going to be like. This goes back to the book theme of strength through weakness. Our present circumstances in this life, as difficult as they may be, tough and difficult, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit with us. We have hope for a future final consummation and boldness now. We know the end of the story, folks. We know how it's going to end. Paul continues then in verse 13 and he says, Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So he's taking us back to Exodus 34, 29 through 35. And uh, this is out of the New Living. It just flows a little better. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all of the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all of the instruction the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instruction the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face, so he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. The key point from this story, 
Moses would speak to God face to face. But when speaking to the people, after he was done, he would just put a veil on after he was finished, except when he was giving commands, he would put a veil over. Why a veil? I think two reasons. First, so the people would not gaze at what was coming to an end. Something was coming to an end, so he would put that veil over because it was coming to an end. He was, the, 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 the shine was fading. The second one, I don't think God or him wanted them to mistake that present glory of Moses in his face with the future glory that's going to come. He says, there's no comparison. That's pretty glorious to see Moses' face light up, nothing compared to the future one. So he said, they, God was saying, don't be preoccupied with that. There's a greater glory coming. God protected them from looking at the lesser when the greater Jesus was going to come, and we'd be able to see God in his son face to face. Verse 14 then provides a bridge from the Exodus narrative to the new covenant age that we find ourselves in. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Paul just said that the purpose of Moses' veil, that they they wouldn't mistake the old glory for the one that's coming. Now he moves from the purpose to the result of the veil episode. Their minds were hardened. Their minds became hardened. The hardening of the mind and the hardening of the heart are very similar. Hardening has the idea of spiritual stubbornness, that foolish deflection of the truth. We've all met people who just, they hear the truth and it's just, they don't want nothing to do with it. We went to a memorial service yesterday for a dear brother who passed away in our church, and a large number of people that were in the audience knew the Lord, but a large number of people didn't. And the wife stood up and gave just a bold declaration of the gospel and said, I want people here to know the truth, that my husband, if if, if you don't know the Lord, she said, he prayed for you ferociously. That's what she said. I know that he prayed for you ferociously because I heard him pray for you. And so some of you that know the Lord, I've asked you to stand up here, and different people stood up all over. If you want to know more about what it means to love the Lord, what it means to have a personal, go talk to some of these people. What a bold proclamation of the gospel there. But even at that, even with the simplicity of the gospel that was shared, people's hearts are hardened. People's hearts are hardened. Their minds were hardened. How does the veil get lifted? How did your veil of understanding get lifted? It doesn't happen by extensive knowledge of Scripture, going to seminary, or buying, obeying each element of the law just perfectly. Paul says it only happens through Christ. That's how the veil gets lifted. It's God's relentless pursuit to save sinners, fulfilling his promises in the person of Jesus Christ, that the veil gets lifted. It's God's relentless pursuit to save sinners in the person of Jesus Christ that the veil gets lifted. Paul then drives home the point in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Unbelieving Israel today and all of the unbelieving Gentiles, they belong to that old age with a veil over their hearts. That's why so many in Paul's day didn't get it, didn't understand it. They failed to embrace this new truth about Jesus invading history. 
They didn't see it. They had veils over their hearts. The chapter concludes with three verses where the Lord and the Spirit are kind of interwoven together. Let's read that. But when the... Whoop. Did I go forward there? Never mind. Look in your Bibles. Verses 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Amen? Amen. When, the, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In the Exodus account with Moses, Moses removed the veil. He lifted it up and down. But here the veil is removed. In context, it's the Lord who does the removing in the life of every believer. It's the one, he's the one who removes the veil. The result of our coming to our union and our faith in Christ is removed from our, the, the veil is removed from our hearts and from our minds. Here, here's Paul's logic as he goes through the text. The Father removes the veil as we're united to Christ by the Spirit. You and I now see God in Christ, face to face. Paul is no doubt speaking of his personal experience on the Damascus Road, seeing Christ face to face. He says, you all see Christ face to face. As we, and as we begin to transition to communion this morning, um, let me just conclude with a couple of things. Here's the point, I think, as we're trying to finish up the chapter. The veil is removed from our hearts only through union with Christ. That's the only way that the veil gets removed. But it's actually the Spirit who does the uniting with Christ. It's the Spirit inside of each one of us. Which brings us to verse 18, and one of the most important texts in the New Testament for what it means to be a Christian. Read it in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says, we all, every believer, we all, every one of us, sees the Lord face to face, as Moses did it, and we're being transformed into the very image of Christ. That's, that's what's happening to us right now. It's a lifelong process of sanctification. One commentator summarized it this way. He says, as we gaze at Christ... In the pages of the Bible, and that's, that's where we gaze at Christ most often, is in the pages of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is molding us, even now, into the final resplendent radiance that will be of such bright beauty that the world will not be able to stand the sight. Isn't that amazing? They won't be able to stand the sight. That's gospel transformation, folks. That's how we're transformed by the gospel. That's how... It happened at your salvation and, now, and then throughout your earthly walk. So let me wrap up with three questions. What's your gaze been on this past week? What has your gaze been on this past week? What have you been looking at? Or looking forward, what would you like your gaze to be on this coming week? I could give you nine points of application for what to do, but the Holy Spirit's really good to do that. When I say something more general like that, what has your gaze been on this past week? Secondly, how can the phrase, our sufficiency is from God, 
work out practically in your life this week. If Paul's sufficiency is from God and ours is from God, how does that look practically this week in your life? How does that look in your marriage? How does that look in your parent-child relationship? How does that look in the workplace? How does that look in the marketplace? Our sufficiency is from God. And then third, so what have you, what have you been gazing at? What are you going to gaze at this week? What does it mean that our sufficiency is from God? And thirdly, speak hope to someone this week. It's a world that needs hope spoken to it. We're all sitting around waiting for the mask mandate to be lifted. I know we talk about that a lot, the mask mandate to be lifted. People this week need hope as they wait for approval or whatever they need or wherever they're at. They need hope, and you have the opportunity to speak hope to them. And you might just be one piece of the chain for them coming to faith in Christ. Speak hope to someone. Paul, Paul says that because of Christ, we have hope. So I challenge myself and each one of us to look and pray for opportunities to share the hope of the gospel with someone this week. We have a glorious future ahead, and we would like them to join us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. As the worship team comes on up, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our hope is in you. We thank you that we have a glorious future ahead But that glorious future ahead, that that eternity with you, impacts how we live right now. We want to live lives totally and absolutely surrendered to you in every area. Give us opportunities to share the truth of the gospel. Maybe not the whole plan of salvation, but an encouragement, a, a pointing to a truth from Scripture that we can share with somebody. And Lord, thank you that today, from every tribe and tongue and nation, you are calling people to yourself, to your eternal family. We praise you for that. We're thankful. I'm so thankful for Gracious Cross and for the churches in this community that are proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And thank you that we can be extensions of that out into our homes and communities and workplace this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.